Well, welcome everybody. Glad, glad that you're here. We're going to talk about ancient church history just a little bit. And um, I think others will be, the, the crowds are gathering. I'm sure they're <laughs> about to come in at any time. So thank you for coming out. I know, I know on Wednesday in the middle of the week, uh, people are tired. So I appreciate you, appreciate you coming. <clears throat> um, we're going to be talking about uh, church history in a, a period from the period of 5 B.C., until about 590 A.D., over six-week period. And um, we're going to do, of course, week one this evening, and then we'll finish up in six weeks. We may have an interruption uh, there uh, because of my schedule, but uh, we'll have six weeks. And then finally, at the end of six weeks, Columba goes to England. The Pope Gregory, or sometimes known Gregory the Great, sends Columba and some other missionary to England. So, an interesting story. So, going to, going to do that. Okay, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I, I announced the class. I don't know if you were there in church on, on that particular Sunday, but I gave you a little teaser about Perpetua. And her name, technical name, was Felicitas. But that's too difficult to say, so it's Felicity, okay? And uh, so Perpetua and Felicity are in Carthage. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, I need to stop. Where is Carthage? North Africa. It's in what we would call Libya today. It's right there. It's a, a big city. The Romans had long ago conquered Carthage and obliterated the Carthaginians. Punic Wars took care of that. And so Felicity uh, is a servant girl. She's eight months pregnant to an upper-class woman by the name of Perpetua. The emperor in Rome at this particular time is Septimius Severus, and that's uh, his lifespan right there. The year is 202. I laughed afterwards I, I, at church. I said 2002. Just you know, I hope we were. Yeah, I hope you I hope you caught that. We don't have any emperors running around today. Um, so the emperor Severus is getting anxious because these Christians are atheists, and so he issues an edict that anybody who says they are Christian or who admits or is known to be a Christian are going to be taken to the arena and killed. Perpetua and Felicity are taken along with three other men and put before the judge, are you a Christian? Yes. Deny the faith? No. All you have to do is sprinkle a little incense, say that the emperor is Lord, Go home, do whatever you want to do the rest of your life until next year. What's the big deal? Okay? Can't do that. Do you realize what's going to happen? Yes. All right. You're not going to change your mind? No. So, Perpetua and Felicity are taken to the arena. The three men are believers as well. They're taken into the arena first, a wild bear, a wild leopard, and a wild boar. 
that have been starved and brutalized because they would do this to the animals are let loose upon them and they're killed. Now Perpetua and Felicity come in. Oh, well, let's see. Let me rewind the story just a bit. Because Felicity is eight months pregnant and Roman law wouldn't allow a pregnant woman to be killed, they said, well, we'll give you a little time. You have to understand that in Christianity at that point, to suffer a martyr's death was considered extremely, extremely meaningful. Felicity um, begins to pray, and she asks God, allow my baby to be born, and I can give the child. Labor pains come on after a couple of days, and the baby is born. It's a little girl. She gives the girl to her sister. Perpetua herself has a baby son. And her father, we don't know anything about her husband, but her father pleads with Perpetua, don't go through with this. And she says, I cannot deny my faith. Apparently her father was not a believer. So now we're back, back to the story. They take Perpetua and Felicity into the arena. A wild cow with sharpened horns is let loose. The women are stripped. The cow attacks uh, first Felicity and kills her. The crowd is caught with the horror of all of this. Remember now that this is like watching late night TV for them. But somehow in the gore of it all, they start jeering to the magistrates to stop. So the magistrate stops this. And yet the edict's been given that Perpetua must die. They lead her out of the arena to the gladiator, and she's beheaded. Such is life for Christians in the Roman Empire at this particular time. Pretty sobering when you think about it, right? Pretty sobering. Okay, um, there's a lot to this. Uh, these are busts uh, and sculptures of Severus. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. Well, let's, let's just take a look right now. We're going to digress from church history for just a minute. What do you notice about those sculptures? <laughs> yeah, right. A lot of curly hair, right? Were they all done by the same person? No. But yet, do you see how similar they are? So just imagine you're sitting, you're the emperor, and you're sitting for your portrait. And undoubtedly, the artist or the sculpture has an artist that draws the picture 
And then from that picture, this sculpture is made by different sculptors at different times and yet see how similar they got it. Rather remarkable, don't you think? Okay. Uh, so uh, now, Severus is uh, getting near his death in, in 211. He has, he has a son, Caracalla. Well, actually, he has two sons. Caracalla is the oldest one. The younger son is Geta. Caracalla is in line to become the next emperor. Dad is lingering just a little too long. So Caracalla not only ushers his father into eternity a little quicker, but he also murders his son. Oh, excuse me, murders his brother, Geta. Not only murders him, but in his mother's arms at the same time. I don't, we don't know if Caracalla had a uh, remorse, but Caracalla the son builds this arch in honor of his father. Anybody here been to Rome? Okay, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, Gail, others? That, of course, still exists. And if you'll notice, you can begin to get a little bit of the scale of this thing. You have some people down here, say they're five and a half feet tall. And that was done before computers, before cranes, before lots and lots of things. So, uh, so that was, and the, Rome, the old Roman Senate is just off to the right. So um, trying to make some art and history come alive a little bit for you because that, that's, that's the man, uh, the, not only the son, but the father Severus himself uh, that, in whose honor. If you go through that main arch and look up, that's the coffered dome inside. Now remember, that's concrete and marble and stone long before there was reinforcing rod and all the clever things that we have for keeping concrete together, and yet it's still there today. Okay, enough, enough background on that. Let's get started. What is history? Supposedly a recount of what happened. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you didn't have too boring of history teachers in high school, but many of us did. So this is intent to make up for and be a little bit more educational, a little bit more fulfilling, a little bit more meaningful than perhaps what you had. Let's consider <clears throat> Henry Ford said that history was bunk. As Bob just said in a slightly different way, history is whatever the historians say it is. History is boring, just a bunch of wars and old dead guys. Blackie Sherrod, the sports writer, said, history must repeat itself because we pay such little attention to it the first time. thought that was pretty good. And then a typical junior, senior high school said, who cares what history is? I like this from Emerson and then Churchill. Emerson said that properly understood there is no history it's all biography. And isn't that true? It's human interaction. 
Winston Churchill never wrote a boring sentence in his entire life. And just listen, listen to the cadence and the substance of this. History with its flickering lamp stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes to revive its echoes and kindle with pale gleams the passion of former days. Doesn't that feel good? Okay. Come in, standing room only. What is history? We get the word history from the Greek word. Doesn't everything come from Greek almost? Uh, Historia, and it means to inquire, inquiry. So we look into and inquire into the past and attempt to write it down. But think about it for a minute. Can you reconstruct what happened yesterday? Not just because I'm getting old, okay? But if you were given the task to write down everything that happened in Richardson yesterday, or even in the life of CBC, or even in your family, can we do it? So everyone that writes something in history is writing from a perspective of some kind. And like Bob said a minute ago, you know, purportedly it's what happened. Well, every, every person that writes has something to say and a, a particular perspective. And we see this even in the New Testament with, and the Old Testament as well. Things are being written from a point of view. And many times, especially in the Old Testament, you'll, you'll read one verse in the life, say, of David, where you'll be reading along and you go from verse 12 to 13 to 14 and so on. And there may be gaps of years in between those, those verses that are left out. You wish you could know. But So history at best is inquiring, and we're trying to understand what happened. Historical knowledge is the carefully and critically constructed collective memory. I wanted to pause here for just a second on this. We're going to get to church history in just a second, but I think it's important for us to understand something about the nature of history and how it affects us as individuals. You realize that you and I are largely our memory. Imagine for a moment that you had suffered amnesia completely and didn't know anything about your past. Anybody in here have <laughs> that problem? Anybody in here? Anybody in here have uh, uh, familiarity with anyone in your family that's experienced something like that? You know, we hear about temporary amnesia. But just imagine if it were permanent. You didn't know, you, can't, you don't know anything about the schooling where you went. You don't know anything about family. You don't know anything about your heritage. You don't know anything about government. You don't know anything. Imagine what that would be like. What's that? Politicians, yeah, we wouldn't know anything about them. So understanding history makes us wiser in our public choices and more richly human in our private lives. I don't want to linger here too long, but as, as we learn from history, it shapes and changes our perspective. Have you, any of you ever had the experience where you found out some awful, some awful revelation about somebody in your family that you grew up 
around them, and you found out 40 years later something about them that was just dreadful. In one way, you're changed. In another way, you're not. It's a little mystical, but can you just think about it? Think, think about how history affects you. And one of the reasons why I get exercised about the teaching of history in our schools is when our nation's history and our world history is not taught accurately or as accurately as it could be, we end up causing this collective memory to be twisted and short-circuited. Am I communicating? Is that, make, is that making sense? And consequently, because of that, we end up making very poor public choices because we don't have a framework in which to put that decision-making process. And so, well, go on. So what is history? It's Greek for inquiring, but time that you and I live in is not circular. It is moving forward, and we as believers from the scriptures, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, is telling us that time is an arrow. It's moving toward a predetermined end. And if you want to be kind of clever about it, you can say history is his, that is God's, God's story, where he is sovereignly moving through time, bringing all of it to a predetermined conclusion. So, is that making sense? Does that give you kind of a framework for what we're talking about? Any reaction to that? Yeah. Yeah. All of us probably in this room understand the fleetingness of time. Amen. Right. Uh, We won't pause. Let's not linger there. Um, In business school, you learn about the forward nature of decision making. Sounds fancy. What it means is you make decisions about the future. Okay. You set budgets and all those kinds of things. Can't. And I've heard more than one professor say, well, you can't make decisions about the past. And what they're meaning is you can't make business decisions in the past. But we as believers can make decisions about the past, can't we? Aren't we, aren't we told to forgive? So just think about that. We can talk a long time about time. Okay. So let's keep moving. Why church history? Church history is a huge puzzle and many, many of the pieces are missing. We wish we knew more about what had happened. Jesus died, uh, crucified, rose again, probably about 34, 33 A.D. The Apostle Paul was probably converted about five years later. We don't know for sure. Keep in mind that calendars and timekeeping at this point in human history is very different than it is today. At any given time, 
in this part of the world of the ancient Mideast, you would have calendars being measured by local rule of who was king in the third year of king so-and-so. And that would only pertain to that province or that country. And meanwhile, the country next door would have an altogether different timekeeping system. So that's one of the reasons why dating of things is a little complicated. Plus, we came along, Julius Caesar changed, changed the calendar. So we have the Julian calendar. We have the month of July after him. Caesar Augustus comes into power. And we have the month of August, named after him. We have Thor for Thursday. And so we've got lots of accretions into our, into our calendar. So we have lots of pieces missing in our puzzles. And we can and we should learn from past mistakes. We're answering the question, why church history? And so Karen's going to read it for us. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through about 12, I think. Yep. Keep reading. Right. There's an admonition from the Apostle Paul. Pay attention to what's happened in the past. Learn from that. We, in turn, can learn from the past of church history in lots of ways. Church history humbles us because there were simultaneously great people and great sinners. Church history is family history. Think about it, okay? Everybody, everybody in here has family, has heritage, okay, in a human sense. But what we're talking about is that we have a spiritual family. And do you, when we say the body of Christ, we're talking about, usually we're referring to the existing believers worldwide. But I hope after tonight and after some of the time in this, in this course series, you begin to have a new and large sense that we are participating in the family of God from Jesus on. Okay? Now, we're not only living, we're talking about church history. Of course, we're in all of God's family. We're all the way back to Adam and Eve. All right? So think about that. We've got some wonderful examples, some that we're going to get into that we would say, gee, God ought to be more selective about who he chooses. (laughs) That's a joke. (laughs) He chose us, right? Okay. All right. So that's God's family. Great cloud of witnesses. We can gain insights from the past for evangelism and theology and music. Occasionally we sing Martin Luther's uh, Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, We have other other songs and hymns that go back uh, a long way as well as our, our modern ones. One of the reasons why church history is valuable is because it can correct current errors and heresies. It wasn't very long ago when we were hearing about the Da Vinci Code and there was all the excitement about that. And, you know, part of, part of that story was that Jesus had, had, was married to Mary Magdalene. Well, if you know anything about church history, you know that that heresy is about 
1,500 years old. And things can be so old that they become new. Okay? And and, uh, few, if any, heresies are new. Jehovah's Witnesses and Arianism. Anybody ever had Jehovah's Witnesses come to, to your door? Okay. They sound so good at first. But when you start zeroing in on the person of Jesus, well, he's not quite God. You know. Well, Arius, a long time ago, in the 300s, said the same thing. What do you think, Jim? Okay. Church history can be a lens for examining Christianity with culture. What's the relationship between the church and the state? Is anybody getting a little nervous about some of that in our country? And in World War II, you had Nazism with the German church, and of course Dietrich Bonhoeffer and many, many others were martyred as part of that. Have any of you read very much about what Nazism did with Christianity and the gospel? Well, you should. You had the organized German German church, and they took the hymns and changed the words that the state and the fatherland and the Fuhrer got substituted. You had this massive, massive propaganda program campaign where Goebbels, who was in charge of that, said, if you just say a lie long enough, people will believe it. A thousand people getting killed is a horrific thing. A million is a statistic. You can't wrap your head around that. So what happens is that the German church was organized under the government and pastors and theologians were asked and required to be submissive to the state. Otherwise, you're going to lose your position and you may lose your life. I just happened to think of this. I carry around in my Bible this quote from Martin Niemöller. Martin Niemöller was a pastor who was faithful to the gospel and ended up going into a concentration camp. And this is what he said. They came first for the communists, but I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for me, and by that time, no one was left to speak up. I carry that as a reminder. We should pay attention to history. Church history expands our horizons, and church history is a source of inspiration, and indeed it is. Now, I asked Sandy if she would read for us Galatians 4.4. 4. 
Okay, that one little verse, in the fullness of time, it pictures a woman who's pregnant. Let's use somebody we know. Uh, she's not here, but I don't think she'd be upset. Let's use Jennifer Borat, okay? Jennifer is due to have her baby any day, all right? And many of you women here are mothers, and you know what it's like that last couple of weeks. It's just, let's get this over, please, okay? So in this verse, Galatians 4.4, Paul uses that kind of word picture that the time kept building and building and building and building. And finally, the Messiah came. What are some of the things that led up to that? Because we're talking about leading up to church history. Well, if you want to boil down real simply, there's three categories. The Jews for hundreds of years had been telling about there's one God, monotheism, and God had given them the scriptures. And we know that many Gentiles came to the Jews and were converted. Okay? That's the Jewish part. The Greeks brought the finest language and the most precise language the human race has ever known. It is absolutely exquisite for communicating precise truth. And one of the people we have to thank for that is none other than Alexander the Great. And uh, you have, and don't pay attention, please, to the movies with Brad Pitt and, you know, those kinds of Alexander the Great. We're talking about somebody that was pretty phenomenal. But then when you stop and think about if, um, if Aristotle was your personal tutor, you would probably do pretty well. And that was true of Alex, Alexander. Okay. Um, the Greek language, as all of you know, Alexander had visions of grandeur. He wanted to make this massive empire, which he did, starting from Macedonia. His father was Philip of Macedon. And he goes all the way, uh, taking his army, goes, defeats everybody in his path, and gets all the way to the Indus River at India and wants to keep going. But his troops mutiny and say, We've been on the road for years. We think we want to go home. And so they, he said, okay. So they turned around, and uh, those are some other interesting stories. But you had the spread of Greek culture. Alexander loved it, loved the culture, thought the whole world should have it. And indeed, you have in Israel at the time of Jesus, you have three primary languages, Greek, Latin and Aramaic. And Jesus probably spoke all three as well as the disciples because Galilee is the northern province and it, one of the main trade routes went through there and there was Roman garrison as well. I'll try not to get off on track. Okay, and then the Romans came, conquered Greece, conquered the world that was known then and implemented peace. If you began to get a little bit antsy and a little bit rebellious, you didn't like the Romans, 
they would send a legion over to remind you of who was in charge. Okay. Rome had a wonderful road system. We've all heard the expression growing up, all roads lead to Rome. And they established peace. And so those three things. Let's pause there for a second. Does that make any sense? Resonates? Reaction? Fullness of time. All right, we're not done. But questions? Put your hand up if you have something. Okay. Uh, so let's keep going. We're talking about the fullness of time. <clears throat> what I just had on the previous slide about the Jews, the Greeks, and the Romans is the takeaway. If you want a little more detail, we're getting it right here. The Jews had a prophecy about a coming Messiah. They knew that. And you see in the Gospels, every once in a while, the disciples are saying, are you setting up the kingdom now? You know, you're doing that now? Okay. And so they hated the Romans. They hated Gentiles, period, but especially the Romans. And they expected that the Messiah was going to come in, establish the kingdom, throw out the Romans, and we're going to be free. Well, as we know, that's not quite what happened. Now, what did Rome do? Rome had unified much of the known world under its government and gave a sense of unity to all these various countries. The Romans did a pretty good job of establishing control, but not creating too many problems. They would come in, conquer the land, and say, all right, just obey the laws, pay your taxes, you can worship whoever you want to. Just include the emperor once in a while. And if you were pagan, and that's all that was really required, then saying, you know, Emperor Severus or... Julius Caesar or Nero was Lord. Well, that's just one more on the shelf, you know, no big deal. Now, we get kind of a different picture when we read in the New Testament about the, the Jews because they didn't want the Romans and were frequently stirring up problems. But that was not characteristic throughout the rest of the empire. Does that make sense? So there was this sort of enforced peace. And you had all these Roman roads that went everywhere. And can't you just see how God uses us? Hope you can see that. We're going to get there in a minute. So what else was going on? Rome had conquered militarily, but Greece had conquered culturally. So you had this kind of interesting situation where people were proud to be part of the Roman Empire. You know, being a Roman citizen was a pretty big deal. And on more than one occasion, that helped the Apostle Paul. Remember when he got arrested in Philippi? And the jailer and the local magistrates found out afterwards that he was a Roman citizen. Whoop, whoop. We could be in big trouble if this gets back to Rome. So they quietly come down to the jail and they say, well, we've made a mistake and why don't you just kind of quietly go out, you know? No way. 
Paul, I love that story. It's in Acts. You can look it up. He says, you just escort me. And who else was with him? I don't remember. There was Apollos, maybe. I can't remember. You escort us out of prison with the proper dignity. Oh, yes. Right this way. Okay. So, okay. So being a Roman citizen, that was something that was considered valuable and important. Remember that this whole empire is a war machine built on slavery. Sobering. But it was peaceful. That's that, that Roman peace began with about Julius Caesar, about 40 B.C., and moved on for about oh, a couple hundred years A.D. Greece, meanwhile, had conquered culturally. So people were proud to be Roman citizens, but they enjoyed Greek culture, Greek food, Greek stories, Greek mythology, Greek games. And so you have this kaleidoscope of, of, of thought. And the language that Alexander had wanted and had mandated throughout the empire that we speak in Greek, we developed from classical Greek with Socrates and pre-Socratic philosophers. That's classical Greek down to about around 350 B.C. And then the language began to change and become more what we would say ordinary or everyday. And so from about 350 until about 350 B.C. until about 450 A.D., there was a period of Greek language called Koine Greek. And then from about 400 A.D. on to the present, we have what's known as modern Greek. The, our New Testament was written during that Koine Greek period. The disciples knew Greek and talked in it and wrote in it, as did um, many, many people of the times. Okay, and then many false idols had failed to give victory over the Roman conquerors, and this caused people to abandon their gods. Well, if I've been worshiping this God all my life, and I wanted and prayed to it to deliver me from the Romans, and that obviously didn't happen, then what good is this God? And this began to kind of pervade much of society and much, much of the world. We could talk a long time uh, about this, but this is important. People grew, people lived with mystery and they worshiped gods of all different kinds. You get a little flavor of this in Acts chapter 17 when Paul's on Mars Hill and he says, I see you people worship everything. Even over here you have a, a, a monument to the unknown God. So uh, in the arena, for example, in, in Rome and in other places, you would find buried in, in the ground um, uh, prayers to various gods that the chariot riders would would use to uh, pray that they would win or they not get killed. 
And so there was, you know, they, they prayed to everything, prayed to trees and grass and fertility gods and uh, clouds and skies and birds and uh, creeping things and all, all this kind of thing. And, and it kind of got to the point where people said, does any of this make any sense at all? And then what happened, especially in, in Roman society, you got um, a whole class of philosophy that were Stoics. And the Stoics said, I don't know if the gods even exist. And Marcus Aurelius was one of the famous emperors that was a Stoic. And so there got to be this kind of emptiness. A, what Isaiah says, the people were sitting in great darkness. You get a sense of that? Okay. Comments? So, also, we're talking now about the fullness of time. What were the things, and this is just sort of the tips of a bunch of icebergs that lead up to Jesus being born. The mystery religions of the time emphasized a savior God that required bloody sacrifices. And when the evangelists like Paul and the mission uh, missionaries and others came and said that one has come and has died for your sins, they said, hey, that makes sense. That resonates. I've sort of thought that. Okay. And then uh, the Greeks also believed in the immortality of the soul, but not of the body. I want to pause here for just a second, because sometimes in Christian circles, we can begin to think of our spirit that God has given us and our soul is what's important and our body is something that we just kind of live in, kind of like a tent. And what? Bear with. Yeah, bear with. Yeah. And some of us in this room are bearing with it more than we <laughs> wish that we didn't. Okay, I understand that. But where I'm going with this is if you if you tend to emphasize the value of the spirit and soul and kind of diminish the physical body, that is not a biblical concept. Because God has thought so much about your body and mine that he is going to resurrect it someday and give us a new one. So our humanness, if you will, is body, well, it's body and and soul. Some people argue that we're three parts. Some people argue that we're two. I don't want to get into that. My point is that our bodies are something that God is equally concerned about. And weren't we told that our bodies are the temple of God? So, okay. Is this making sense, everybody? Okay. So these are some of the main forces, if you will, that were coming about that God was using to as predecessors for the coming of the, our Lord. Yes, sir. Yes. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But um, 
I think you're going to be a little bit hard-pressed if you look through the Old Testament to try to see God telling the nation of Israel to become missionaries. No, I'm thinking of it. And I'm not criticizing you. The enforced. Yeah. God, God uses, God uses the, the uh, times and the persecution to get the, get the people out of Dodge. Okay. Okay. Um, let me finish that other thought, though. God set Israel in place to be a lamp in the world, and if anything, said to them, tell the Gentiles to come and see. Come and see what a country, a people looks like who has God as their king. In the New Testament, with the church, that image gets turned around and Jesus says to you and me, go and tell. Make sense? I hope. Okay. Fullness of time. Okay. The church is found in Acts chapter 2. We all know the story. Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected. Fifty days later, or uh, Pentecost comes. You have the upper room. You have 120 people up there. Mary, uh, the mother is there. The disciples are there. 120 people receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter then preaches. 3,000 souls are brought to the church. Something new that happens is that believers are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That was a very rare phenomena in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit would come and go on people. They wouldn't lose their salvation, but they were empowered to do certain things. The men who helped build the tabernacle had the Spirit come on them. David had the kings. Then Paul's missionary journeys occur. Stephen and Paul and Peter and John and the other uh, disciples are evangelizing in Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And believers spread throughout what we call the diaspora. These are the Jews that are dispersed. You have Jews all over the world, all over the then known world over there. Not all of them came back into the land. And they had set up synagogues in various towns and cities outside of Israel. And if you, when you read Acts, you see that Paul goes first to the synagogues and tries to explain to them the Old Testament scriptures and the fulfillment of Christ's coming. Some believe, some didn't. We haven't heard this before. It's not against, it's against our tradition. And how can anybody be saved without being circumcised? And you hear the whole the whole uh, resistance from from the Jews. But nevertheless, the church begins to move. And here we begin to see what's going on. The The dark blue are places where we know that Christians were living at 300 A.D. 300 A.D., you have a fellow by the name of Eusebius, who wrote the first history of the Christian church. And so the gray-blue larger area 
is areas that have been Christianized by 600 A.D. and by 800 A.D. we have what's known, uh, you have Germany and England in, included. Now, looking at that map, remember your geography? Earlier we talked about Carthage where uh, Perpetua and Felicity were martyred. It's right up here, North Africa. Caesarea in Africa. There's a lot of things we could talk about there. But think today now in modern time, looking at that same map. What's different today about that, those areas? You have darkness, certainly, uh, sitting, sitting there. But uh, Ron said, and I think others were murmuring it at the same time, almost all of that area is now Muslim. Charles Martel in, what was it, 1041 or something like that, had a battle of tours here in France and pushed the Saracens, the Muslims, back. But all of this area is now Muslim. Of course, here's Greece and the, the Peloponnesus here, Italy, of course, but all of North Africa, much of Spain, what we call Gaul in this map is really France. Remember Caesar's Gallic Wars? You read that in high school, Latin. And then Germany, and finally up here with the Anglo-Saxons, and you have the Irish over here. <clears throat> Half of my ancestry is Irish. You have to, it's a reading assignment in the how the Irish saved civilization. You need to read that book. Yeah, okay. But we'll talk about St. Patrick when, when we get there. All right. Um, so that then is my presentation. Then what I have is a video that I'd like to show you. And if we can remember how to do this. Help me out here, Paul. Um, yeah. We had, tea, we had teed it up uh, and was working fine, but we did have a little bit of a computer glitch, so we're sorry about that, but maybe we can get it for next time. But it was uh, a short video uh, about, the, about the history of, of the early church, and um, we'll, we'll be getting more into that next, next week. Sorry for the disappointment. Um, but thank you, thank you all for coming. And uh, how are we doing? Well, straight up eight o'clock. So thank you, thank you very much for your kind attention. Thank Look forward to seeing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah.